I have a little mirror up here. I got up and I looked at it this morning. And I said these words, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the, come on, a little louder, fairest of them all. The movie or the book, anybody remember what that is? Snow White, okay? The Wicked Witch, she looked in the mirror, and for a while she was the most beautiful, and all of a sudden she wasn't. Anger, jealousy, But recognize this little tool. Do we know how much the mirror communicates to us? And it tells us truth every morning. Think of this morning. You got up and you looked in the mirror. Was it scary? For some of you, I know it was. (laughs) Not a pleasant experience sometimes. But they are honest little creatures. They don't compromise. They don't gloss over the defects of our lives. Every wart, do you think of the defects? Warts, pimples, gray hair. For some of us that are older, hair on our ears a little bit more and nose hairs. Um, We really, at times, would rather not look at them. But remember this, is this mirror and this book are meant to gaze into, to look into. And it's a recognition that the Word of God really acts as a mirror to our hearts. It's not the physical things in our life. It's really about our heart. But I think the the tendency is this. Let's just turn the mirror. Let somebody else look in it. Avoid what we see. Why do we do that? And, and I think some answers like this. We, we sometimes fear looking in it, especially when it comes to the word of God. We feel exposed, there's shame, so we tend to avoid looking in the mirror. Now, I, I think there's another response We've been talking about transformation, and this is part two today. But sometimes it's this. Okay, God, I know I need to be changed. But I can do it alone without people. And I think that's really a natural tendency for many people is to say, I want to be changed by you, God, but I'm going to do it alone. But you got to recognize something. It's just not biblical to go down that path. The church is called to be a primary context of relationship where transformation can actually take place. Think of the phrase, confess your sins to one another. Why did he write that? It's because of the us nature of even of transformation. But last week we began by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and this idea of metamorphosis. And I want to put a picture on the screen here. We use the idea of a butterfly. Remember, it starts out as an egg and then it becomes a caterpillar. And then it goes into that stage where it goes into that cocoon, a sleeping bag type thing. And it's zipped up and all of a sudden you add some time into that. And there's this profound change that takes place and out comes a butterfly. Color, wings, 
free to fly. We are called to be butterflies. God looks at us and says, I want you to be a butterfly. Let me give you the first truth for this morning, just a reminder here. If you, we got an outline there that you can use if you want to follow along, but number one, I said it this way. It is the will of God. God communicates this in the Bible, but it's also the desire of God. It's his heart that we would be transformed. Now, hear this, is that transformation is more than just a decision. I'm going to go from a caterpillar to a butterfly, and I'm going to decide it. And you go, no. We go, God, I'm going to learn to love you, and I'm going to love you tomorrow. And you go, it doesn't work that way. Folks, we're more, far more complex than I think we understand ourselves to be. We have this relentless issue of sin. We have these issues of desires that are within us, that are complex and, and sometimes conflicting. But are we convinced that the God of this universe wants us to be transformed? And the scripture, I don't know if you realize it, is filled with examples, uses other kinds of language. When you think of words like sanctification, maturing, growing up, I want to put a couple verses just to remind you of that, that this isn't just the, the place that there's, it's all over the scriptures. Look at this, 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. There's change again. Ephesians 4, 3, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Change attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will be no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of people in the deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow, change to become, in every respect, mature body. Together, we're changed. Who is the head that is Christ? Over and over again in the scriptures, transformation is God's will and he desires it. And God is in the business of transformation. But we must catch this again. And I got to drive home this point because change isn't just about willpower. And when we believe that lie, it's about the willpower and then you couple that with a little bit of knowledge and, and functionally what we're doing is we're, if you go back to that illustration of the, the butterfly, we're a caterpillar and we grab a butterfly costume and we put it on and we think we're a butterfly. And you go, no. Inside, we're still a caterpillar. There's a picture on the screen of a guy. That guy's never going to fly. Not all that good looking either for a butterfly. Folks, we don't buy a butterfly costume and call ourselves transformed. 
But let me remind you from last week a point. Uh, just for review, 2 Corinthians 3, I want to put it on the screen. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Doesn't come overnight. There's a process, okay? Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're being transformed, but notice the change of where it comes from. Number two for your notes, for review, I said it this way. Transformation does not come by our own effort, but by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is in the process of metamorphosis in terms of our souls and our hearts and our minds Let me show you a couple verses why the Holy Spirit is so important. Look at Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit actually helps our prayer lives. He's praying for us even when we are weak. Isn't that cool? He's making requests to the Father on our behalf. Look at another one, Romans 5.13. Another area, how he helps us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It is by the Spirit we can have hope. Maybe you feel desperate today. Realize that this verse tells us that if the Spirit rebirthed you, if you are a child of God, he wants to help. He wants to give you hope. Now, we do have the ability to avoid and to ignore the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, I think sometimes it's like this. Help us, Holy Spirit, but stay away. It feels like a contradiction, but I think many times that's where we're at. But folks, hope is not just generated by the power of positive thinking. There's preachers out there that says this. You just tell yourself to be positive. You can do it. Just tell yourself that you can do it. And you go, no, that's not the Holy Spirit. But let me put another text on the screen. This is our theme verse for our building project this past year. Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, it reminds us that God is the instrument, is instrumental in spiritual change in our lives. But having said that, there are questions, and a couple of you came up on last Sunday and was, was throwing some questions at me, and one of them is this. What part do we play in this process of transformation? Do we just sit in some kind of a yoga trance, find a little stool and sit down and hold our hands out, and mm, God, he's going to transform me? I go, Nope doesn't work that way. I wish it did. It'd be easier. But you got your Bibles. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And I want to just use chapter 2 to set the stage for a, a very important principle. Look at Colossians 2 verse 20. 
You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. See, setting up a religious system, a set of rules, is no help in conquering those desires that are within us that don't line up with what God wants. You know, I think one of the challenges as we walk through this world where it merely manifests our lack of transformation is in the area of relationships. And you know what? People, deep down, want better relationships. And I think at times how we respond is we create some mental rules and we convince ourselves to live by those rules. For example, I think we do this. You know, today, I'm not going to say anything harsh to Deanna. I'm going to just will myself. I'm not going to say anything hard. And if I blow it, I give myself 10 mental lashes and tomorrow I'm going to try harder. I'm not going to... I'm not going to say those bad words. And we blow it again. See, trying harder to do things, especially in the relational world, is really functionally trying to overcome the will. And folks, it guarantees no change in the desires of the flesh. That part of us that learn about and just comes natural, those things. Matter of fact, I think here's the challenge for us, and at least looking back, I grew up in a, a free church like this. It was half free, half covenant. And it was a recognition that as I look back and some of the things that were reinforced, I, I feel like my parents had wanted to create a set of rules that if I lived by those rules, I would become a good Christian boy. And you go, No. When it doesn't work, when, when the rules don't work, did the Holy Spirit fail us then? Or, or maybe we didn't cooperate hard enough. So what do we do? What do we do? See, there is something we must do. Turn over to the next chapter, Colossians chapter 3. Now, I, I want to point something out just to, as a teaser here. After this series, we're going to jump into the whole book of uh, Colossians here. We're going to walk through it. So we will be returning to some of these texts here in a few months from now. Um, but I want to read this passage, and it is critical for us for today. Colossians 3, verse 1. I'm using the NIV this morning. Since then, you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
Let me give you the critical issue uh, today for your notes, number three there. Transformation begins when we start to gaze. Now, I chose that word intentionally. You think about it this way, where we just intently, almost with awe, okay, that word, and give our hearts to the one that saved us. Gaze toward Jesus. Give our hearts to Jesus. How do we do that? I want to put up the two key phrases for you. Set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above. Two parts there. Now, i got to point something out. I didn't point this out in the first service. You might have a different version where it only says mind. But it's interesting because the word mind here is not the same, for example, as Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In this definition, it includes both the desires, the affections, and the head. Together, it's a wider word here. That's why the NIV translates it this way. But set your mind and your heart vertically on things above. Now, just as a hint, if we were to walk through the rest of the passage here, it actually gives a snapshot of what transformation actually looks like. Just ahead, from actually from verse 5 to 4 verse 6, uh, he talks about a renovation of what's going on in the heart. And he's making these new character qualities within us. And and it's more than just changing the behavior. It's actually changing the heart where it is shaping our motives. It's shaping our desires. We begin to relate to people differently. He's giving us a desire and ability to relate and to actually give sacrificial love. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And yes, he uses a mirror, and we see the flaws in our lives, but it shapes our character in the way that we work within the home. That's a little bit later in this text. At work, the way we work with people at work, the way we impact and relate to those people who do not know Christ. It gives a snapshot of what transformation actually looks like. So the key to this kind of spiritual transformation is releasing, in one sense, unleashing the power of the Spirit to become more and more like Jesus. But it's not ritual observance. It's not some dramatic vision or some experience. And it's not just exerting our, our will over some moral decisions that we make. See, Paul said those things create an appearance that, yeah, it maybe impresses people, but it actually is fooling the self. It's taking that butterfly costume and putting it on. Now, when transformation takes place, the heart and the motives and the desires begin to change. That's at the deepest level of where transformation has to go. But I need to make a a statement for you. 
Because notice in the phrase there in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. He has given you new birth. John chapter 3. But because of that, because of that issue, and it's profound, salvation is profound, he has now given you, given you the opportunity to make a new choice in the direction that you can go. You can actually switch directions and set your mind and your hearts upward. Now, here's where I need to make a statement for you. There's this issue of philosophy, and I remember back at St. Cloud State, you know, that great Christian school that I went to, and um, I remember the first quarter, we were quarters back then, I had a philosophy class, and it was a, um, a Presbyterian preacher who turned atheist was my teacher, and we were going after it in terms of um, evil and, and and even this idea of freedom and man's choices and but but as I've dug into that even more, I, I, this statement some of you might look at me crosswise and go this: before Christ, there really isn't such thing as total free will. Why? Well, the scriptures communicate this: you're dead in your sins; you're a slave to righteousness. You make choices all the time, but it's this. The choices that you make are based on your desires. See, if you had no desire, if everything was neutral, there was a utopian free will, you would just sit there. No desires, you would never make a choice. You'd never want to make a choice. And before Christ, the desire was yourself. But after Christ, if you, when you, the day salvation occurred in your life where he created a new creature within you, when you had a new identity, all of a sudden now you are free to make a new decision. There is more freedom after Christ than before. And now you can actually turn and look upward. See, we must catch this this intense transformation that we actually have a new identity once salvation occurs. If you've bowed your Christ to Christ, if you put your trust in Christ, the Spirit has rebirthed you and you have a new freedom. But there's something else that's critical in this process of transformation. Your bullet point there, that last one, it's this. We must embrace the truth that we have a new identity in Christ. The moment you put your faith and when he made you alive, you were rebirthed. God changed you. And now you get to set your heart and the mind on things above, but you got to come to grips with your identity. It's so important. A new identity in Christ is to be the source of your greatest joy. And it leads to passion. It leads to a relationship. It leads to caring for and loving other people. But the New Testament communicates over and over again, and not just here, but I, if you want to write down, read Romans chapter 8 or Philippians 1. 
Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. Do you feel the identity that as Paul wrote that? For me to live is Christ. His most profound meaning in his life was not what he did. It was Jesus. See, there, there's an, with that identity, there's a refocusing. There's looking to Jesus for the source of our identity. You have been raised with Jesus to the right hand of God. You used to be an orphan. You used to be without a father to watch over your life. And now you are God the Father's child. And you have personal access to him. And catch this. You even have the power to overcome sin and Satan. You know that phrase in verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's your new identity. You used to be alienated from God. Now you're spiritually alive. And that alienation from God has forever ended if you are in Christ. And your reconciliation with God is utterly secure, permanent. And you will be assured a glorious destiny one day that you will be with Jesus into eternity and reveling in his glory. See, I, I think as we think of our identity in Christ, it needs to force us to drop to our knees and worship him and bow before him and say thank you. But do you know it? Have you embraced it? To revel in that new identity, it is critical to the transformation process. No matter how new or old you are in Christ, no matter how weak your faith is today, no matter how inconsistent your behavior is, the Father has changed your identity, period. And you are now bonded with Jesus, with the Father, through the Spirit. But some of you stay convinced that God needs to see you as a poor, wretched failure. And if that's your belief, you are believing a lie. You are succumbing to a lie of Satan. And he keeps wanting to throw at this world. And that flesh, that part that's still there within us, keeps wanting to whispering in our ear, try harder to change. Set up more rules to change. And you go, no. Set your mind and your heart upward to God. See, when you think who you really are, are you listening to the flesh or to the Holy Spirit? See, horizontal effort says that I'm in control. I'll change on my terms. See, and, and I think this as well, we have an uncanny ability to blame non-transformation on other people. So other people keeps me from being transformed. Sometimes it's even our families, our past, our moms and dads. They kept me from being transformed. We go, no, if you are in Christ, the option is there waiting for you. Set your mind and the heart above. It unleashes the power of God within you to change you. Think of even simple habits. Even addictions that we have, and even, folks, go beyond the chemical addictions. I'm talking, it could be workaholism. 
We never can slow down. It might be an adrenaline rush that we need all the time to play and get that adrenaline stuff. But all of those addictions, all of those things that keep us in bondage are rooted in a desire of our self-love. When we stay there, it's because we love ourselves so much and that's where comfort is found. That's where comfort is found. Everything is supposed to be about me. And that's why the word of God is so important in this process of transformation. It reveals the deepest desires of who we are. We got to hold up a mirror. That is looking up. That is setting our mind and our hearts up. At times is examining our deepest desires within us. And that deep desire... I'm, de- I'm going to demand that people love me. Or I'm going to numb the pain because people don't love me. I want to put a statement on the screen that I came across in my studying this week. Look what it reads. At the root of every sinful habit or addiction is a legitimate desire for God's love that you're trying to meet in an illegitimate way. He's right. So ultimately, even the pathway for habits and addictions is to learn to trust God and to enjoy his goodness and his love and the freedom that he has for us. You know, there was an old song. Some of you weren't around in the early 80s. This guy by the name of Johnny Lee. Looking for love was the title of the song. And some of you know the words that I was looking for love in all the wrong places. You know it. Looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, hoping to find a friend and a lover. I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. That says, look at another person, and that's where my identity will be found if they just love me. And yet, if you are in Christ, God loves you. So realize that every broken relationship, if you're having relationship issues, is linked to your identity right now. Are we getting the kind of love and attention from the other that we think we deserve? That is horizontal thinking. That is not vertical thinking. It's not setting our heart and minds on things above. Now, some of you are, are, are saying, well, I, Ken, I don't have that many broken relationships. And, and I'll say this to you. You still can have a misplaced identity. Listen, my wife gives me love beyond what I deserve. I... I I'm glad. But if she were to die tomorrow and I went emotionally down the tubes and if my life at that point had no meaning because she's out of my life, recognize something, that it would scream to the world that my identity was a false identity. It wasn't in Christ. It was in that relationship. And we got to catch something here. 
We have an epidemic of parents and grandparents gaining their identity through their children and their grandchildren. And it's a false and an unbiblical identity. I got to get the best love from my kids, from my spouse, from other people. It doesn't work. Matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, but in marriage, having done a lot of counseling over the years, when the kids are pulling away from mom and dad, they get into the late high school years and they're on their own, there's a significant divorce spike. Why? Because their identity has been pulled out from underneath them. And they sit there and go, life has no meaning, my kids are gone. That becomes the tie that keeps moms and dads together. See, where is our identity? What does it look like? Well, let me give you just a little bit of a taste of what it looks like. Colossians chapter 1, I want to show you because Paul is an example. He wasn't perfect at all, and he's not even asking for perfection. He's looking for, for us to have a new identity. That's his goal, ultimate goal. Look at verse 24. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Here's a man where suffering doesn't destroy his ability to care for and love the church. See, with the right identity, suffering doesn't turn into, woe is me. You don't become a victim to what is missing. And Paul suffered profoundly for his faith. Why? His identity in Christ. Let me keep going, verse 25. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. It's the gospel. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches of glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. This gives you the assurance of sharing his glory you're with him in eternity. The secret, Christ lives in you. Paul knows it. He embraces it. And he can su even suffer because of it. Why? His treasure is in Christ. And he is trying to pass that concept along to anybody who will listen. And he loves people because he wants them to come to know Jesus, where their meaning in life will be centered in Jesus. His identity is rooted in Jesus. He can minister, love, and care for with energy and purpose. Why? Because his identity is in Jesus. And look at the result of this again. It even pushes it farther in verse 28 and 29. So we tell others. It becomes his purpose. 
warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God. What does that functionally mean? That they would be, have an identity. They'd be, come to know him, but they would have an identity with him. Perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and I struggle so hard depending on the Holy Spirit, Christ's power that works within me. See, God changes our hearts to truly want to love and to serve other people and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We complete that great commandment. Now, Paul, he knew he wasn't perfect, but it was never to be about perfection. It was supposed to be about our identity. See, God loves us when we are a sinful mess. He loves us when my self-love rules. We are sinners, yes, but we are changed sinners with a new identity. So do we need to look into the mirror? And the answer is, yeah, we do. Yes. And then, as we see even our flawed desires... What we do is we stop and we humbly remember that Jesus died for those flaws and he still loves us. We confess him and we remember that Jesus died for those things. And then we set our hearts and our minds and we turn upward. See, turning upward includes the understanding of sin. We don't avoid that at all. But the opposite, trying to live good moral lives, that's earthly. That's keeping your things, your mindset on earthly things. Set your heart and your mind on things above. See, we're to, to grow in our understanding of how amazing God's love is for us. Then our heart will actually change into a heart that more and more receives joy in sacrificially giving our lives away. We actually grow in the capacity to love. And relationships get built and healed and started. And kids get discipled. I'm going to ask the elders or the guys that are going to serve communion to come on up. But my question for you is, at the beginning point, do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Because if you do not, you're missing out on an identity that he wants for you. He really does. Let me show you one other example of really what this looks like. And it comes from Colossians 3. Look how, therefore... Therefore, you have a new identity. The gospel has worked in you. So as God's chosen people, new identity, holy and dearly loved, your identity. And look at the freedom that you can now actually do. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
Guys, I'm going to ask you to hand out the bread. Realize that this table, in many ways, represents a new identity for us. A new identity. Where we can bow before him and remember that his body was broken for us so that we can't become his child. And now we have the capacity to set our minds and our hearts on things above. We practice open communion here. If you would hold the bread until we take it together, I would ask you to do that. But as you take the bread here, just pause before God. Give him thanks. If you have a new identity in Christ, worship him. Give him thanks. And as you walk through this week, think about your identity in Christ. And the place that you have to go if you go, I'm not sure that my identity is built on Christ. Set your heart and your mind on things above. And look to Jesus. Get into the Bible. Get into community with people that will walk with you in that direction. And know for certain that God and the Holy Spirit is wanting to transform us a little bit more every day. Let's pray.